If you're not reading your Bible, if you're not exercising your religious freedom, there are people all over the world that would appreciate having one. False prophets are having a heyday in Africa right now, and part of it is due to a shortage of Bibles in their language. In America, there's a lot of so-called evangelicals that are falling away. They, they call it deconstructing their faith. And yet statistics say that 85% of America's church-going public are biblically illiterate. I see a correlation between the two. People are not reading their Bibles. They're hearing the word preached, but a lot of times in our preaching, we're cherry-picking the Bible. And I love cherries, don't you? But we need the whole book. Here's an example of a cherry. The truth will set you free, and we're going to preach you a truth today. Can I get an amen, somebody? Well, that verse in context, Jesus said in John 8, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So the freedom we have is based on the truth that we know. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. But the truth that we know is proportionate to the word of Jesus that we continue in. See? Isn't that good? So if all we get is a diet of cherries, I mean, I love those promise books and promise boxes, but they don't deal with every issue of life. The Word of God is inspired, and it's all in there. We need it. Uh, we love the verse that says, Peace be still. Jesus calming the storm. Isn't that awesome? But we forget that after the storm, He rebuked them for their unbelief. They wanted to hear the peace be still because they didn't hear go to the other side. So when you read the whole story, the Lord puts them in a boat and says, go to the other side. Then he falls asleep and then they freak out because they forgot the original word. And so in the storms of life, disappointment, all sorts of chaos happening, people are Losing their faith because it's fragile. It's not built on the rock. He who hears these sayings of mine and does them, Jesus said, is like a man building his house on the rock. And the rains came and the floods came and the winds blew and that house stood strong. But when we don't do the word, and I'm not talking about doing your favorite scriptures, but the word as a whole uh, if we don't even read it, we don't know what to do. Anyway, that's my soapbox for the day. <laughs> In an effort to apply this, from time to time, I'll preach through a book of the Bible because one day I'm going to stand before the Lord. What did you feed my sheep? Just cherries? Just your sugar stick sermons? Well, I wanted to be popular. Well, no rewards for you. No, we want, we want to heed God's word as a whole. And I appreciate topical sermons. I love cherries. If that's encouraging you, great. But you want a firm foundation, take the next step. And read a chapter a day at least, looking for things that speak to you. And what speaks to you, turn that scripture into part of your prayer. Lord, help me to, 
to go to the other side of what you've called me to do and help me not to freak out because I'm always wanting you to say, peace, be still, when you want me to trust you no matter what. Help my faith to be strong. So back to the sermon. We are going through Hebrews, calling this greater things, and it's a revelation of Jesus. That's the other thing. In my preaching for the rest of my life, I really want to look for Jesus in the text. Proclaim him. And Hebrews is all about how Jesus is better. It starts up with God has in these last days spoken to us to his prophets and angels, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son. And he begins to declare how God's son is greater than angels, greater than prophets, greater than Moses, greater than the tabernacle, which is where we are today. He's greater than the priesthood. Are there any Johnny Cash fans in the house? So to open up, we will hear Johnny Cash read our text. Chapter 9. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason... He is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission. Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment... So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. 
to those who eagerly wait for him. Are there any eager waiters in the house? He will appear a second time, not to deal with our sins. He's already done that, but to receive us to himself. We open with verse 11. Christ came as the high priest of good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. What is he talking about? Well, in relating to Abraham, we're talking about the first covenant. We are in the second covenant or the new covenant. The first covenant was initiated by Abraham and then increased by Moses. We are grafted in under Abraham, not Moses. Aren't you glad about that? And in revealing himself, the Lord laid out through Moses the plan through which they would relate to him, which required a priesthood. So in the first covenant, you had to have priests minister to the Lord for you and minister to you for the Lord. Now in the new covenant, we are the priests because Jesus is our great high priest and he ministers to us for God. He is God. So in the first covenant, there was great instructions. If you've ever tried to read the Bible, you probably got hung up somewhere in Exodus. So many details are laid out for this because it's a copy of a pattern. It's a shadow of things in heaven. And it was involved a courtyard called the outer court and then involved a tent with walls that had two chambers, the larger of which was the inner court or the holy place and the smallest of which was, which was a cube 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet called the most holy place or the holiest of all or the holy of holies. And in that was a piece of furniture called the Ark of the Covenant. And there were animal sacrifices performed daily, but once a year the priest would go into the most holy place, to the Ark of the Covenant, to present the blood of of the sacrifice for the nation of Abraham's children, the nation of Israel. And so here's a little cutaway of what it looked like on the inside. There's the holy place and the most holy place. And you had these pieces of furniture, uh, a candelabra or a menorah, seven-branch menorah that burned, and an altar of incense that put out a sweet smell. The place smelled like a barbecue yard with the daily sacrifices being burned outside, and then the table of showbread. And the furniture is laid out, if you looked at it from the top, it's laid out in the shape of a cross. It reminds me so much of Jesus. He declared himself to be the sacrifice. He was introduced as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When he died, they pierced his side and blood and water flowed, which reminds us of the second piece of furniture, the laver of water. He declared himself to be the light of the world. He declared himself to be the bread of life. And he prayed for us in the upper room before going to the Garden of Gethsemane when he wrestled with his will before the Lord. And when he died, the veil in the temple, the temple was built after this pattern, just an enlargement of it. The veil in the temple was ripped from top to the bottom and revealed that the ark was gone. They had lost it, so they kind of had a semblance of religion, but not fully operational because of the losing of this important piece of furniture where the presence of God would dwell 
above the golden plate that was on top of this golden box called the mercy seat. That's where the blood was presented as a sacrifice for the people. But Christ, as we read, has come with the greater, more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, not of this creation. And it is patterned after the holy of holies. What about the rest of the tabernacles? Does it have any heavenly semblance? I'm not sure, but you, you definitely can see when John describes it in chapter 21 of his book called The Revelation of Jesus Christ, or The Apocalypse of Jesus, it's 1,500 miles square by 1,500 miles high. This is the verse, Christ came as the high priest of good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. In chapter 21, verse 2, says, I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them, and be their God. The gates to this city are never closed, day and night. But there's no night there. Because the Lamb is the light. Jesus is the light of this city. So this is the greater, more perfect tabernacle that John saw, and he heard the tabernacle of God is with men. So this is called the New Jerusalem uh, the new covenant tabernacle. There is no temple there because God is the temple. There's no need for sacrifices because Jesus already did the perfect sacrifice. There's no need for washing because Jesus has already done all of that. There's no need for a menorah. He is the light of the world. No need for the communion bread, which reminds us of the day to come when he will break bread with us in eternity because he is the bread of life. I just love that. So now that's a bit of review. So now let's move on. Verse 12, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Now, the priest in the first covenant had to first of all offer a sacrifice for himself on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and then a sacrifice for the people and take a basin of that blood and apply it to all the pieces of furniture to make them holy. So when this says that Jesus entered the most holy place, it wasn't to apply his blood to the furniture in the tabernacle of God in heaven, the new Jerusalem. It's already holy. It was to make a way for us to enter in. I think it's very significant that when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, historians recorded, and it's in the Jewish Talmud, that they couldn't keep the temple doors shut at night for 40 years. Every day they would lock up the temple. Yep, it holds. They'd come in in the morning and they'd be wide open for 40 years. 
speaking of the entrance of the better covenant that Jesus made the way of, because if you back up 40 years from 70 AD, you come to 30 AD, when his death, burial, and resurrection happened, when he made the way for us to have the better covenant. And it also points to the heavenly tabernacle, where the doors are never shut day or night, and there's no night. (laughs) I think it's beautiful. All right, so he entered there, having obtained eternal redemption. So this is once. The other ministry was daily and annually. This has already been done permanently. It's been done. Having obtained eternal redemption, verse 13, for the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer. A lot of people are excited about red heifers right now. Sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. It was a way of being ceremonially purified in that day of the first covenant. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The old covenant, the first covenant, didn't deal with your conscience. You still had guilt on you for the crimes you had done. But you could remember you paid your dues. But Jesus paid our dues. And by his spirit, he can cleanse our conscience so we can do his will unencumbered by our past. Anybody here have a past? This is how we're able to go on. It's through the power of the blood. Verse 15, and for this reason he is a mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Any call folks in the house? We've received the promise of eternal inheritance and when we die, we do so without fear. I mean, my dad used to say, everybody wants to go to heaven but nobody wants to go on this next load. (laughs) But when the time comes... The passing of the saints can be a bittersweet thing. Happy for them, sad for us. Verse 16, for where there is a testament or a will, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. If someone leaves you in your will, you don't get that stuff. You don't receive that inheritance till they die, right? For a testament is in force after Men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. And so Moses delivered the first covenant to the people. They said, we're going to do it. And he sprinkled them with blood. Let's go to um, verse 22. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. Now is God just in love with hemoglobin? With the red fluid that flows through veins of living creatures? No, it speaks of life. The blood in your veins carries life to your cells and waste products from your cells. What the blood of Christ does for us. It carries the life of God to us and carries our sins away. It's a transportation system. It's the uh, perfect spiritual logistics plan of redemption, the blood of Christ. Yet there are people in the world 
there's more Jews that believe in Jesus than in the history of the world. But there are devout Jews endeavoring to keep the first covenant, but they can't because they don't have the temple and they don't have the tabernacle. So they endeavor to have a relationship with God without the shedding of blood. But they take sin seriously. I think sometimes us New Covenant believers, because the blood of Christ has done so much for us, we do not see the seriousness of sin. And it could lead to a lack of appreciation for what Christ has done for us. So this is what devout Jews read, those that are endeavoring to keep the first covenant. This is what they read at Rosh Hashanah every year. They read, we will celebrate the solemn holiness of this day, how awesome and fearsome it is. On this day, your rulership is lifted up. Your throne is established in mercy, and you sit upon it in truth. Truly, you alone are judge, arbiter, discerner, witness, recorder, sealer, inscriber, and reckoner. And you remember all forgotten deeds. You open the book of records, and it reads itself, and everyone's signature is there. Remember the promise of the better covenant made to the house of Israel? Your lawless deeds I will remember no more. But under the first covenant, God remembers them against you. The prayer goes on. The great shofar is sounded. The still small voice is heard, and the angels tremble with fear as they proclaim, Behold the day of judgment. Even the armies of heaven are to be brought to judgment, for in your sight even they are not innocent. Man, you cause all who come into the world to pass before you like a flock of sheep, like a shepherd seeking out his flock and causing them to pass under his staff. You cause every soul to pass before you. You count, reckon, and review every creature, determining its lifetime and inscribing its destiny. On Rosh Hashanah it is inscribed, and on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, It is sealed. How many will pass away and how many will be born? Who will live and who will die? Who will die prematurely and who will live out his days? Who will perish by fire and who by water? Who by sword and who by wild animals? Who by hunger and who by thirst? Who by earthquake and who by plague? Who by strangling and who by stoning? Who will have rest and who will wander about? Who will be at peace and who will be tormented? Who will be at ease and who will be bothered? Who will become poor and who will become rich? Who will be brought low and who will be raised up? But repentance, prayer, and charity avert the harsh decree. So then they have to do good deeds to counterbalance the bad deeds. Because there's no more shedding of blood. This is what the excitement about the red heifer is. They can get perfect red heifers, then they can offer sacrifices and, and have a measure of hope. Who's thankful for the new covenant? We are so blessed, folks. There are some devout Jews who practice caparot. Animal rights activists hate caparot. For they they wave it above their heads, the chicken, 
sometimes holding it by its wings, and say a prayer and then hand it to a professional executioner who cuts its throat and it's given to the poor. This is what they say. This is my substitute. Keep in mind they're waving it. My vicarious offering. My atonement. This chicken shall meet death, but I shall find a long and pleasant life of peace. Why do they do that? They need hope of redemption. And so their hope is that through this shedding of blood, God will atone their sins one more year. I'm not throwing stones. I'm just endeavoring to help us see just how beautiful the new covenant is and how blessed we are. Our text ends with these words, as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. So we all have an appointment with death once. If you get resurrected prematurely through a miracle, guess what? You have to die again. <laughs> Poor Lazarus, right? You know miracles point to the eternal? They point to the eternal. So the resurrection of Lazarus, in fact, Jesus said it. When uh, Martha said, oh, if you'd only been here, he wouldn't die. And Jesus said, he'll live again. Oh, I know in the great resurrection he will. He said, I am the resurrection. So the raising of Lazarus pointed to the identity of Jesus. He is our resurrection. He's the first fruits. But he's the only man that arose from the dead and is still alive. So eternal resurrection. Do you know that all healings are temporary? This is the truth. Pastor, you're going to kill our faith. No, I'm building your faith. Our faith is built on a solid rock, not on a fantasy, not on pretending. Read the whole book of Acts. Cherry picking Acts is part of the problem in the American church anyway. When a healing happens, it points to the eternal. We had an amazing miracle in Bill uh, Breedlove's life. He was healed of dementia. I mean, this guy was stumbling, falling, banging into stuff. And when he was healed, he was able to jump up, click his heels, and uh, throw a baseball and catch it. All these things he hadn't been able to do for a long time. But that season of, of inactivity diminished his muscle tone. So it wasn't long till he needed another healing. He had ripped a hernia. And prayer line after prayer line, he had to go the slow boat to China to get surgery through the VA. Uh, it's, just, it's just reality. A miracle and then a need for another one. We're, we're, we're living in a fallen world, are we not? These bodies are going to become immortal one day. They're gonna, there's going to be a great exchange. Right now, our spirits are eternal. Spiritually, we will never die. And our minds are being renewed. So our spirits have been reborn, our minds are being renewed, and our bodies are going to be replaced. The older I get, the more I like that. <laughs> so as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this is the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, 
To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. So he's coming back, not to die again. That's already been done. He kept his appointment, although it, it was uh, something he wasn't worthy of having to go through. He hadn't sinned, but he did it for us as our substitute. So I'd like to speak to you in the next few minutes, benefits of Jesus' blood, death, and sacrifice. With his own blood, we saw he entered the most holy place once for all. He obtained our eternal redemption. He cleanses our conscience to serve the living God. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Can you say forever? For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, that's what it did under the first covenant, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. If you are bogged down by your past, we'd like to pray with you and pronounce you on the authority of the shed blood of Christ, your conscience is cleansed. Now, if you need to turn yourself in the law, you know, we'll encourage you to do that. But you can have a clear conscience so you can serve the Lord unimpeded by your past. By means of his death. We're talking about the benefits of his blood. Now here's the benefits of his death. He's a mediator of the new covenant. He redeemed transgressions under the first covenant. The first covenant convicts us. All of sin comes short of the glory of God. He promised eternal inheritance to those who are called. And he activated God's will and testament through his death. We saw what he would do through his blood. This is what he does through his death. For this reason, he's a mediator of the new covenant by means of death. For the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all, while the testator lives. So he did these things for us through his death. He died having lost all his blood. He died having given up his spirit. He died by laying down his will. His will died first. Father, not my will, but thine be done. Now, in serving the Lord, we don't die for our sins, but we die to our will. No longer are we living for us. It's As you grow in the Lord, he'll get you moving from milk to meat. It's not about me. It's about him. That's what advances the gospel in the world. And by, because of his better sacrifice, we saw what his blood, his death does, his sacrifice which is better, this is the benefits that come to us from that. He now appears in the presence of God for us. The better sacrifice. He appeared once to put away sin. One sacrifice did it. Bam! He was offered once to bear the sins of many. He will appear here a second time 
to save his people. The sacrifice has already been committed. The debt has been paid. The way has been paved for him to return. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens, that's the old covenant tabernacle, should be purified with these, that's with blood, water, hyssop, scarlet wool, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. That's Jesus. His one sacrifice could be looked at as plural sacrifices. The shedding of blood from his brow when he was crowned with thorns, the shedding of blood when he prayed, not my will but thine be done, when the pressure was so great on him, he sweat as it were great drops of blood. The shedding of blood from his back, through the nails, through his side, and the shedding of his will, which is where it all began, not my will, but thine be done. Better sacrifices than these annual daily rituals of slaughtering animals. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true. He never ministered in the copy. But into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often. You know, he's not continually going to the Father, hey, uh, remember I died for their sins. It's been done once. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The sacrifice of self. He led the way for us saints. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this a judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. All right, we're wrapping it up here with a big question. On the count of three, read this with me. Ask this question. One, two, three. Three. I'm glad you asked. Here's why. Are you ready for his appearing? Are you ready for your death? Are you ready for your appointment? It's going to happen sooner or later. It's real. Just as surely as you're going to pay taxes or get hungry or thirsty, you're going to die one day. How is this good news? This is why the good news is good news. We don't have to fear death. But are you afraid to die? Are you not ready? Are you ready for judgment? One day we're all going to stand before the Lord and answer for every deed done in our bodies. Are we ready for that? Or do you have assurance that through the sacrifice of Jesus, he's made a way for you to not just be atoned, which is an annual cover-up, redeemed, which is a permanent expunging of your record. Are you ready for Christ's next appearance? In conclusion, this last two verses again, just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once, to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin,
but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. The offering was paid for you. When he returns, it's to receive his people to himself and to wreak havoc in this place. Don't wait till that day comes. And don't wait till your deathbed. You may lose consciousness and miss out. Today is the day of salvation. God knows everything. He knew you were going to be here. He set you up. Whatever reason you came, he set you up to come and hear this message. And yet there's three things he doesn't know. He knows everything, but there's some things he doesn't know. He doesn't know a sinner that he doesn't love. And he doesn't know of any other way to save a sinner that he does love from sin other than through a relationship with his son. And he doesn't know of a better time to save sinners that he loves from the sin that he hates through the sacrifice of his son. He doesn't know of a better time than today. Let's bow our heads. Father, I pray for every person here. If they're not ready to meet you, if they're not ready for death, if they're not ready for judgment day, if they're not ready for your return, I pray, Lord, you would not let them rest till they call on your name and ask you for the forgiveness of their sins and put their faith in your sacrifice, in your life, in your blood for their salvation. Lord, I pray today would be the day of salvation for everyone in this room that is not ready. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. The word amen isn't just a closing word to a prayer, but it's a word of agreement. Will you agree with the Lord today? anything could pray with you about giving your life to the Lord that would be awesome don't leave here today without doing that if you've not done that pray with you for healing pray with you for provision pray with you for wisdom we do that he is worthy thank you for worshiping with us today the Lord bless you and keep you the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace He's worthy of it all. He's worthy of it all.